The title of today's message is The Not-So-New Testament. The Not-So-New Testament. And I want to spend the entirety of our time disabusing our mind of one idea that might be there that I hope that after the end of today's message won't be there anymore. Okay? We're going to do a little brainwashing today, right? but in a good way, in the right way. So before we begin our study, of course, we want to begin with a word of prayer to ask for the Lord's guidance. Heavenly Father, thank you again for another day of life. Thank you for a Sabbath day of rest and fellowship. And thank you now for your word. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired his writing will teach us in this hour what it really means and the application in our lives. Lord, help us to be the church that you want us to be, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A great many Christians, I believe, perhaps even some in this room, have a false conception of the Bible. And I don't blame those individuals. You know that the Bible originally did not have, for instance, chapter divisions and uh, verse notations and divisions. And also, any Bible that you pick up has two sections to it. There's the bigger first part called the Old Testament, and then you have the smaller end part called the New Testament. And there is a temptation to say, oh, well, old means old and done away with, and new means new and improved, right? You see that new and improved almost go together in our society, whether it's toothpaste or internet service, they're going to say it's new and it's improved. And we have this idea, well, if it's new, it's got to be better. That means it trumps the old. There was something wrong with the old and the new. We've come into the new. Almost as though we have, you know, there's the original back here that's interesting and historical and antiquitous, but we have version 2.0 on the other end, right? And this is the newest up-to-date thing, and this is where the church lives. In fact, there are Christians uh, known as dispensationalists who go so far as to make this division between the old and the new so sharp that they'll say people were saved in a different way in the Old Testament. That was by works of the law, but now we're saved by grace. Since Jesus came, we have a new covenant. You have a new testament. In fact, we have a whole new church. Everything from the old is done and everything from the new is better. Well, this is the concept I want to spend the burden of our time today disabusing your minds of. If it's in there that, well, most of the Bible is is setting the stage and it leads up to Jesus, but once Jesus came and once the New Testament church started, all that was done away with and we have a whole new structure, we have a whole new thing. I want to demonstrate to you that that's not the case, and I want to demonstrate that it wasn't the apostles' intent as we go into the book of Acts to start a whole new revolution, a new church. I believe they saw themselves as fulfilling exactly what Scripture had been all along. For instance, let me me take you to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll just start there to give you a reference. Hebrews chapter 10. talks about the new covenant. It uses this language. You find in the Bible, new covenant and new testament. But what's the new about it? Chapter 10, we'll start here. Verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So they're talking about the law, the Old Testament law, was a shadow of the things to come. For, verse 2, they would, not then have, would they not then have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So, of course, the whole book of Hebrews is looking, for, looking at Jesus and his ministry as our sacrificial lamb and heavenly priest. And it talks about how the Old Testament and its sacrificial services and the blood of bulls and goats could not redeem from sin. We understand that. And he goes on in verse 5 to talk about, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you were prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. And we say, aha, everything in the Old Testament is now done away with. Slow down. What is it talking about? Over and over, it's referring to offerings and sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats. And that those things have been done away with because we have the antitypical sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. The substance has taken the place of the shadow. But that does not mean that the entirety of God's word now is out the door. Now we have Jesus, a new thing. Slow down. We, we go on. We could do this over and over. For instance, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Let's go there. Well, in fact, no, no, no. Say in Hebrews 10. I wasn't done there yet. I'm sorry. Verse 11. We're just going to keep reading. If you don't mind, we're just going to read the book today. <laughs> Verse 11. And every, high, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Again, this is referring to the sacrifices are done away with, and Jesus now is the fulfillment. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us that after he had said, uh, for after he had said before, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sin and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, I want you to notice this. It doesn't mean that there's a new law. He says it's the same law as the old one. I'm just going to write it in a different place. Which, by the way, was the goal in the Old Testament, too. To have the law not just written in granite, but actually ingrained on the tables of the heart. And he says, after Christ come, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to reestablish my law. Jesus, the law is not a new law. It's the same law now delivered into the heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. For instance, now we'll go to Matthew chapter 5. And we see that Jesus himself taught this very same thing. Chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think. Now the sentence doesn't end there. Praise the Lord. The Lord does want us to think, does he not? Right? But this is a particular thought. He says, don't have this in your mind. I want to get this out of your mind. Do not think that I came to do what? To destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to do what? to fulfill. Of course, he says, don't think that I have come now and have separated everything old and that's done away with, that's destroyed, and now, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm simply fulfilling all of those things that have come before. And he goes on to talk about, for instance, you have heard it said, as he says here in verse 21, 
You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in, judge, in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, kill whomever you want. Is that what he said? New law. We're trumping the old and bringing in the new. The old way used to, don't kill people. Now, sure, kill anybody. Of course, that's not what he's saying. He's landing it deeper in the heart. Notice this, verse 20, 22. But I say to you that whoever is, what's that word? Angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So notice he's going beyond just the action, and he's taking the same law and putting it deeper into the heart and not just a superficial action. So instead of doing away with the law, he actually grinds it deeper into the soul itself, into the heart of man, which, of course, was the idea. But you have a lot of Christians who say, no, 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 no. The Old Testament is about law. The New Testament is about grace. The Old Testament is about works. The New Testament is about faith. But we're going to see today that there, in all likelihood, should never have been an Old and a New Testament. There should simply be the Testament. Right? The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are the same thing. It's just a different location. The Old Law and the New Law are the same thing. Right? But somehow we've gotten this idea in their mind that once Jesus came and the new church started, everything is new. Friends, that's not the case. The Scripture is a continuum from creation all the way through to Jesus' return. All, everybody. Now, even Jesus Christ's coming. Of course, the Old Testament looked forward to it, but sometimes we even have in our mind, well, the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming of Jesus, and now that he came, the New Testament is always reminding us of what he did. But friends, that's not the case either. Jesus is not at the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's not on the earth anymore. He's alive, doing very well. He's in heaven right now, and he's coming again soon. Even the ministry of Jesus, though, it, of course, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is what fuels the engine of salvation. It wasn't done in those 33 and a half years, and now we're just looking back on what was. No, friends, we have a living Savior, and Jesus is still alive and active, and the continuum goes on until he returns. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 1. I want to demonstrate to you that the, that the apostles understood this concept that the New Testament is not new in the sense of getting rid of the old or that the church that was to be established is now a newfangled thing, a new and improved replacement of the old, but simply a continuation and fulfillment of what the Lord had already established before. Okay? Again, Acts chapter 1. This time we'll start up with verse, let's go to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And of course, they're returning from what event? What had just occurred in the verse previous? The ascension of Jesus, right? He had met with them for 40 days, gave them instruction about the kingdom of God, and then he goes up into the heavens, and the angels say, why are you looking to the heaven? That same Jesus will return. So now go and start your work, verse 12. So they return, verse 13 now. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And it notice it lists them off. One by one, not just, you know, Peter, James, and the others. It goes through each name. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And if you were to count those up, you'd find that there are 11 names. Okay? Now, I'm, gonna in, I'm trying to help you, help you to see this, inst, this focus on the number 11 to 12 here in the book of Acts, chapter 1. 
Now, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. By the way, this is a little aside, but sometimes I think we have the idea that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and as a result, the church was united together in one accord. That the Spirit brings unity. Well, there's a truth to that, but friends, unity also enables the Spirit to work. Okay? Sometimes I think we have a picture of the, someday the Holy Spirit will be poured out in latter rain power, and then the church will be united, and then we'll work for Christ, and then we'll... As though we're waiting on Christ. When I think the other way around, Christ is waiting for his people to get their act together and say, now, that's a machine we can run. Go for it. But again, we're going to be studying this in the book of Acts as we continue, but just put that in your mind. Most of the things we think about the Acts chapter 1 and 2 are not accurate. Just going to throw that out there. We want to see what the Word of God actually says. Now, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. And here's another reference to numbers. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was, and here's our word again, numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, apparently, there were more people there than just these 11. It mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, some other women, and some other individuals. Altogether, their number was about 120. But there were 11 central figures. And Peter gets up among those 11 and says, All right, brethren, we're supposed to wait here in Jerusalem. Jesus has given us our instructions. We're going to pray together. We're going to study the scripture. And notice he gives a scriptural appeal for what they should be doing in the meantime. And it says here, again, verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, verse 18 and 19 describes the destruction of Judas, which we don't need to go into, but it was gross, okay? Now, but notice his appeal to Scripture in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms. So he appeals to Scripture about the missing number of Judas. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be what? Desolate and let no one live in it. Okay, so he's going to be done and gone away and desolate and no one's going to take his place individually as a person. However, and let another take his what? office. So his home, his life will be gone, but his office needs to be filled. Right? So Peter gets up and says, all right, brethren, there's 11 of us, but the scripture said one would desert him, one would turn away, but at the same time, his office must be filled. Let another take his office. We have work to do. Scripture says this has to happen. Here we are. Let's do this work. So verse 21, therefore, so based on that biblical foundation, of these men who have accompanied us, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now let me break this verse 21 and 22 down for you. So again, therefore means because of what we just studied. It says, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that Jesus went in and among us, and it started with John all the way up to the, the baptism of John all the way up to his ascension of Christ. Now, have you ever considered that? Apparently, it, there were, by, by the way, there was Mary and other women, but apparently it had to be a male. 
And it, not just anybody, not just any male, but specifically there were some qualifications that had to be met. Namely, they had to be accompanying us all the way through Christ's ministry, starting from the baptism of John, which is where Jesus was baptized, correct? All the way through his ascension. Now, I always kind of had the picture that Jesus had this 12 apostles around him all the time, and that they were his only core, and then he would go from town to town and pick up a crowd here, and then they'd drop off and pick up a crowd here, and they'd drop off, or maybe a home visit here or something like that, or in the synagogue. But as they traveled, it was just Jesus and the 12. But apparently... There were other individuals who were men who traveled right along, right from the baptism of John all the way through his ascension, who followed everything that Jesus did. And he said, all right, we're going to have to, you know, I don't want to, you know, be germane about it, but, you know, let's go to the bench. One of our starters has fallen. We need to go back up. And apparently they had such a thing. There were people who had met that same qualification just as much as they had, but these individuals who had been called to be the 12 disciples and 12 apostles, and the other gentlemen were just kind of there. But now that the time came up, they said, all right, we need one of these to step into Judas's place. So verse 23, and they proposed how many? Two. Joseph called Bersabbas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen. So they were very clear. This is not just us doing this. There's clear qualifications. It has to be a man who's followed along all the way from John to the Ascension. And we've got two of the best we can come up with. Now, I don't know if that means that they were the only two who qualified or just those are the two best candidates, but they brought them forward and said, these are the two we feel would be the best and fit this qualification. Now, Lord, you make the final decision. Show us which of these two you have chosen. Notice it's not them choosing. Now, sometimes I have heard it postulated, and perhaps you've thought this too, that who was the replacement apostle for Judas? People say, aha, it was Paul. Friends, that's not biblical. Paul comes along later, after the day of Pentecost. After the, he, he even refers to him as a, an apostle born out of due season, right? He was like, I'm the other, I'm a different breed, if you will. Paul didn't follow, doesn't meet the qualifications. He hadn't been baptized with John and followed Jesus all the way through. They said, these are the qualifications we're looking for, someone to fulfill our number. And there's a specific number they had in mind, which brings me to the point, if they had two candidates, why not just say, we're going to be the new and improved church. We're going to have 13 apostles. Why were they so intent on saying, okay, even though there's a great number who fall, and why don't they have all 120 of them? Let's just all go out. Why did they say, all right, we've got 11. We need 12. We've got two candidates would take us to 13. Lord, you help make the decision now. Tell us which one you've chosen. Why are they focused on this number 12 so, so intently? I mean, wouldn't you want the church to grow? All hands on deck. Let's just, everybody's an apostle now. Slow down. They had a picture in their mind that from the Old Testament, they understand that they're fulfilling, right? Again, verse 24, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry. Now, that's not to say the other ones didn't have a ministry, correct? But this particular role of ministry. This ministry and apostleship from which Judas fell by transgression that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots 
And the lot fell on Matthias. And here's that language again. And he was, what's the word? Numbered with the 11 apostles. So if you have one person who's numbered with the 11, you get a total of 12, right? Peter gets up on the day and says, brother, we're not ready to start this church off because we're not in line with Scripture yet. We've got 11. We need 12. Let's organize this church. And they're all together in one accord, praying together, studying the Word of God. They bring it before the Lord, and the Lord apparently makes it clear who they're they should choose, in fact, whom he has chosen, according to the language. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. Now, I want to take you to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, I believe, paints this picture for us. Revelation chapter 12 is in very brief picture imagery an outline of the church's history from the Old Testament times until the very end of times. And of course, in Bible prophecy, a woman always represents what? The church. Okay. Now, I want to show you something interesting because there's people who said, well, there's the church then and now there's a whole new church now. I want to show you that this isn't biblical. Revelation chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, that is a church, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, verse 2, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Okay, so we're introduced to this woman, and again, woman always represents the church, and it tells us certain attributes about this woman. She was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. The sun, the moon, and 12 stars. Where did this language come from? You notice it's something interesting. The, the book of Revelation is basically a culmination of all the other books of the Bible that go before it. There's continual references to Old Testament or previous things, right? There's references to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Egypt and, and uh, Jezebel and all kinds of things. Babylon, all these Old Testament figures are used in the New Testament. In fact, this last book of the New Testament and here we have this idea of a woman, that is a church, clothed with the sun, standing on the moon with a garland of 12 stars. Sun, moon, and stars. Where is this coming from? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 37. They all their end of the Bible. Genesis chapter 37. We find the story of that dreamer, as they would call him, Joseph. And of course, who is Joseph's father? A little Bible quiz. Who is Joseph's father? Jacob. What was Jacob's other name? Israel, right? The Old Testament church, the Old Testament people of God were known as the children of Israel, correct? Right? And here is one of those children, namely Joseph, having dreams. Now, chapter 37, let's go to verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the... Uh-oh. Eleven stars bowed down to me. You're like, oh, it was that close to being right on. Right? But of course, there are twelve stars. Who's the twelfth star? Joseph himself, right? So Joseph is the one saying it, and his brothers are the eleven stars, thus he would be the twelfth. They've got the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars. And what does it possibly mean? What, is the, what does the Bible tell us what these symbols mean? 
Well, verse 10 continues. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? He understood what that meant. The sun, the moon, and the stars, right? This is a picture of the family of faith, the children of Israel. There's the mother and father and the 12 sons, which, of course, the Old Testament church is the children of Israel. And here in Revelation chapter 12, that's the image that's used to describe this church. Clearly, this is the Old Testament church, namely because of the sun, the moon, the stars, which is a reference back to the children of Israel in Jacob's time. But also, look at verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who is the child that the church brings forth in the Old Testament? Jesus Christ himself, correct? Has the child been born at this point? No, this is before the child is born. And then she's pregnant and gives birth. And then we see in verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And you think, oh, I never understand biblical language. What does a dragon mean? Well, just skip over to verse 9 very quickly. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Right? So we're talking about Satan here, the devil, going against the church who's the woman, but his primary target so far is not the church. Who's his primary target? The child, right? Verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, and it does not say to devour her, it says to devour her child as soon as it was born. Did that happen in the experience of Jesus? Was there a death sentence on his head before he was even born? Absolutely, right? The angel had to come and tell Joseph, take them and go down into Egypt, which by the way is a fulfillment of scripture too. Out of Egypt I have called my son, right? And he says here, take him, it's time to, it's time to fulfill scripture right now. Don't delay, get out. Because there's, there's a death decree for all the children under two years of age. The dragon, being Satan, used his power on the earth, which being the Roman Empire at that point, to execute a death decree against any baby born. His issue was with the child, and he would do anything to get the child taken care of, if you will, eliminated. Because he understands if this child succeeds... My time is short. Now, verse 5, very quickly, the entirety of Jesus' ministry is wrapped up in one verse. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. She gives birth, the child gets away, goes up to God in his throne, and you can almost imagine the imagery. The dragon is there trying to snatch the child as soon as it's born, and the child is born, and shoop, it goes up to heaven, and the dragon shoop, doesn't get what he wants. But it doesn't say, so the dragon gave up, <laughs> decided I've been licked and laid down and prepared to die. Not at all. Watch this now. Verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, it seems like an incidental detail, but let me ask you a question. Is this a new woman? No. It's the same woman from before. It's the same church has now birthed Christ, witnessed his ministry, and now going forward, it's the same church as the Old Testament. There isn't like 
There's the one woman who represents the Old Testament church, and then a new woman comes on the scene, and it's, no, 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 no. Same church, this continuation of the children of Israel. Now, after the, it's being reestablished, there's a refocus of this, but it's not a new and improved version, it's a continuation. And of course, the, the reference there to the 1,260 days we're going to be discussing in our meeting, so I would encourage you to come out and learn about what in the world does 1,260 days mean? But this is definitely the church in the New Testament time and going forward to our day. And now you notice, by the way, well, we'll just we'll pause right there. Acts chapter 1 again. The Apostle Peter is not the same Peter, if you will, that used to stand up and say things during Jesus' ministry. The Apostle Peter was kind of like Babe Ruth in the fact that he's either going to hit a home run or strike out. He doesn't ever bunt, you know what I'm saying? He never just has a little side job. He's going to stand up and either walk on the water or fall in the ocean. I mean, that's it. He's going to say, we're with you, you're the Son of God, or you will not go, and Jesus has to say, get thee behind me, Satan. He's very fun. But now in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter stands up with a much clearer understanding of Bible prophecy. Where do you think he got that from? Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This is before Jesus ascends to heaven. And being assembled together with them, he, that is Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when, he t- when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? They still needed some correction. Is this now the time when you're going to build up the, the, the temple and it's going to be, you're going to be crushing the Romans? Are we going to get our you know, Roman tunics now off of those soldiers? Is... And Jesus said, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So apparently there is a time coming when Jesus will be the King of kings and Lord of lords and reign on this earth, but it's not then. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Which, of course, gives us an outline of the entire book of Acts. Starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That one verse, verse 8, gives us the organizational structure of the entire book of Acts. Starts in Jerusalem, and it works its way out to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So they had this question on their minds... Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But notice what he did for those 40 days. If you go back up to verse, verses, just start with verse 1. Here, Luke is writing about his introduction here, and he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days. And what was the topic of his conversation during those 40 days? And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he stays on the earth 40 more days. 
to have a Bible study, an instructional time with these 11 to teach them the things they needed to know. So when Peter stands up later in that same chapter and says, no, 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 brethren, we're doing the right thing. We're supposed to stay right here in Jerusalem. And then he opens up the scripture to the book of Psalms and starts explaining, here's what we need to do. We have an office to fill, right? And of course, in Acts chapter 2, it will be Peter who stands up again and preaches a message based on God's word. Used to be Peter would just shoot from the hip. Anything he felt, anything he came out of his mouth, just bloop, it would come out. Sometimes it was great. Other times it was very, very bad. But now, Peter has had his thinking aligned, I believe, from Jesus Christ in accordance with the Old Testament scripture to say this is what we need to do. This is our purpose. This is our mission. And by the way, just to show another interesting thing, there were 12 leaders of Israel and, of course, 12 disciples. If you go to Revelation chapter 21... the second to last chapter in the entire Bible, Revelation chapter 21. When John sees a new heaven and a new earth, he sees the new Jerusalem. And it says in verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So the new Jerusalem, representing God's permanent dwelling place, is going to have gates each 12 of them, three on each side, named after the 12 children of Israel. Okay, so you think, ah, this is the Old Testament church, but watch as it continues. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So notice in one structure representing God's permanent dwelling place, you have the representative of the Old and the New Testament equally involved there. It's not like, well, the old one was done away with and that was destroyed with the earth, and now we just have the apostles and the new church. No, 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 no. All in one structure, you have both 12 from the old and 12 from the new. Another really fascinating thing, I just like to throw this one in there. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Well, in fact, let's go to chapter 9, verse 1. I'll show you something here. Chapter 9 and verse 1 of Luke. During his ministry, Jesus did more than minister. I know that sounds weird. His ministry pertained more than just ministering, right? But his ministry included the training of others to do ministry, right? His ministry was not coming to just do a function. It was to train others to do their function. He was a walking, living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. And we see this in chapter 9. Of Luke. Now, they only had three and a half years together, but Jesus already started sending his apostles out on field trips, getting used to doing things on their own. Chapter 9 and verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then he gives them further instructions. And they went everywhere in verse 6, preaching the gospel and, pre- preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So he has his core 12 that he sends out to do the work of ministry, 
Now we go to Acts, I mean Luke chapter 10, just one page over. And verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. So is this 58 plus the 12? No. This is a separate group of 70. So there's the core 12 and then there's the 70. Okay? And he sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he was himself was about to go. So notice that Jesus used a broader group for ministry besides just the 12, but the 12 were supposed to be the leaders, so he trains them and sends them out, but he also trains this larger group and sends them out as well. Verse 2, then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So notice they're not looking for more apostles. They're just looking for more workers. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And he goes on and he gives them the instructions of how they're supposed to do their ministry, very similar to the 12 that had already been established. Did you realize that both the 12, which we've already looked at, has an Old Testament foundation, the 12 children of Israel, but also the 70 have an Old Testament foundation? Go to the book of Numbers. Let me show you something fascinating. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. We'll start with verse 16. There's an Old Testament parallel to what Jesus did in his ministry. Numbers chapter 11, starting with verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me how many? Seventy men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that, I, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and I will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Right? These are going to be extensions of you. They're going to be your helpers in this work of ministry. And he calls 70 together and he says, I want to put my spirit on them as well. Go down to verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them and took of the Spirit was on him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so. Again, apparently their ministry was temporary and not permanent like the leaders of the tribes, or especially Moses himself, but apparently they, had, they were a supplemental worker base. He calls them together and said, they're going to help you, Moses. I'm going to put the same spirit on them as on you. And the Lord empowers them to do the work of ministry. What you see is an Old Testament God is the same God of the New Testament. The Bible says that he doesn't change and that God had an ideal for his Old Testament church was to welcome and bring people to Jesus. But of course they fail on that. So the Lord simply says, all right, we're going to do it again. We're not going to make something new and improve. We're just going to fulfill what was supposed to be in the old, and we're going to continue it now. And in his ministry, he establishes the 12 apostles, like he had already established the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he opens that up to 70 others, and they do the work of ministry, just like they had done in the Old Testament. And then when we get to Acts chapter 1, as we study our book of Acts, apparently the apostle Peter understands this now. And he gets together and he says, Brothers, we can't just go forward here with 11 and even if we have two, we can't have 13. It needs to be 12. Because we are the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And I bring all of that up to bring us to Revelation 12 for our final text. Revelation chapter 12. Again, we see the Old Testament is the woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars. After Jesus is born, it's still the same woman, but now it goes through a persecution time of 1,260 years. But after that time, there's an extension of that woman that continues to thrive and be faithful even until the end. We'll start here with verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. By the way, that time, times, and half a time apparently is parallel to the 1,260 days previously mentioned in the same chapter. Again, if you want to understand Bible time prophecy, keep coming to the meetings, okay? But, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Notice the whole thing from the beginning to end is about the woman. It's not focusing on Jesus Christ. Of course, that's the dragon's focus, but he can't get Jesus, so he's going after the church. And the Old Testament and the New Testament, and now we see the very end passage here. And the, woman was in, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. So apparently there is a faithful lineage from this woman, Old Testament, right through the New Testament, even to the very end of time, who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I believe we're living towards the end of time. And I believe that we are not some newfangled, risen-up church. No, no, the Lord has called us to be the extension of the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, and the final culmination of those who just continue to remain faithful to the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. God has called us to be His people at this time, and it's not to be a new people, but it's to be the faithful who He's wanted to have all ever since there was a people. And he says, at the end time, there will be a remnant. There will be a faithful few who will be the extension of that woman who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Whatever it is you do, please don't get caught up in this idea that, well, the Old Testament is done away with and there's the New Testament church. And then that got lost in the Dark Ages. So now we need to recreate a new church, a new, new. Don't be ensorcelled by the new. God is going to have one people with one faith, Old Testament, New Testament, and end times. And brothers and sisters, I believe we're the extension of that. Not because he's called us because we're so special, but because we're faithful to the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the burden of my heart today, is to demonstrate that the book of Acts, as we look at this New Testament church, is not something revolutionary new. It's simply being faithful to what they should have been faithful to all along. And friends, that's the Lord's call on us today, too. We're not trying to create something new, have new doctrines, new experiences, new this and new that. What the Lord is looking for is faithfulness to what he's already given. I get frustrated sometimes with, um, well, I, I love my son to pieces, but sometimes he'll, he'll literally ask for more new food while there's a plate of food right there in front of his face. Right? And it's like, your job isn't to always be having new stuff come to you. Your job is to do what I told you to do all along. And I believe that's what the Lord is looking for in his people today of people to be faithful to his word, to his commandments, to have the testimony of Jesus, 
and finally fulfill what the Old Testament was supposed to be, what the New Testament started off and be the final culmination in these end times of God's faithful remnant people. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much today for the Sabbath and for all the good things that come with this Christian life of ours, but as we study your word, help us to never believe that we have a new experience or an improved expectation from your word, but help us to say we want to be the people who are faithful to what you've given us all along. Help us to not see that there's Help us to disabuse our minds of any ideas that there's Old Testament ways and New Testament ways, and then there's end-time ways. Lord, help us to just simply be faithful to your word and live out that life of Christ that you want to see reflected in your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.